Welcome to Design Your Life, the podcast where we explore the central role design plays in our everyday lives and how, if harnessed correctly, has the power to positively transform the way that we live, design better businesses and sustainable solutions for the planet. We speak to creative entrepreneurs around the world about how they inspire their ideas to life and how they make it all work and the role design plays in their lives. I'm your host, founder of Frost Collective and author of Design Your Life, Vince Frost. At Frost Collective, we are dedicated to designing a better world. Our specialist teams work across branding, strategy, place visioning and wayfinding, solving problems with empathy and creativity to design experiences that benefit people, business and the planet. And as a proud certified B Corp, we meet the highest environmental and social standards by balancing profit with our purpose to design a better world. To find out more, head to frostcollective.com.au. Welcome to today's special edition episode from Lego to Skyscrapers. Today I catch up with a phenomenal couple, David Flack and Mark Robinson of Flack Studio. Having recently designed the interiors of the soon-to-be-open Ace Hotel in Sydney, along with Troy Savant's stunning Melbourne home, Flack Studio are one of Australia's leading interior architectural practices. We chat about their childhoods growing up as country boys, their yin and yang relationship and how they foster creativity from a playful place of ponder. Uh, hey, David and Mark, welcome to Design Your Life. How are you guys doing? Doing really well. Yeah, great, Vince. How are you? Yeah, I'm really good. Thank you. We're just really excited because we're here in Sydney. You're in Melbourne. Uh, we've both cities have been in lockdown for quite some time and we're just about to start to get released out of it um, as of early next week, which is going to be really cool. Are you guys still in lockdown there? I think we're maybe a month behind Sydney now. I think we like to take the, the crowning glory. Yeah. No, and you've been in lockdown. Yeah, for no, most, I think we're scheduled to be released in December. Oh, <laughs> Jesus. You've been in lockdown most of the year. How's it been? Has it been tough for you guys in business and, uh, you know, mentally and everything? Yeah, look, it, it has been tough. I think um, there's definitely been different waves to it. The first uh, lockdown that everyone experienced, to be frank, was almost fun, if I can say that. Yeah, um, it was. And what I mean by that, it was, uh, you know, we sent gifts to all our clients and our friends and there was lots of kind of activity happening in the industry. Uh, and this is when everyone thought that this would just blow over in a couple of months. Yeah. Um, so when we had our big lockdown, um, again, we're able to kind of manage through. It's been this this year that's been quite complex for our team, our suppliers, our collaborators. Uh, I don't think there's anyone I haven't spoke to that says that they're, they've somehow had their own little meltdowns um, yeah. and, and, and struggling. I've seen that uh, in our team too. Um, we've got about 45 people here in Sydney and, and I'm in the studio even today by myself. Uh, everybody's been working remotely and everyone's pretty um, been incredibly productive and they really held together well as a team. But it's definitely there's, there's days anyways when we didn't have COVID that you'd feel crap and you'd feel yeah. um, there'd be issues you know, going on in your life and stuff. But this is just highlighted it more hasn't it at least we've got a at least we know kind of why it's happening or why we're not feeling so great but i'm really looking forward to people getting back to some kind of normality people back in the studio uh back together physically because it's that physical interaction that really uh, as good as te technology's been that the interaction with people in the physical space is been is what kind of where the magic happens i think we both agree that, you know, those beautiful little incidental moments with your team is where, you know, the sparks and the creativity fly. So, you know, 
it does get a bit laborious on on Zoom. I kind of feel like COVID's been that day uh, when you're overseas and you've been overseas for a few weeks and it's just the day where you're packing your bags and you're getting ready for the airport, but you're literally thinking you've had all those epiphany moments during your holiday and you're thinking about how your life can be different and all these amazing things you're going to take into your life. But the reality with COVID is we've had those epiphanies about work-life balance and how we want to uh, deal with everything from uh, being community-focused and uh, and focus on mental health and all these different things, but you're literally in this chamber mm. uh, and every day it just gets tighter and tighter. Yeah, I mean, it's funny you say that because I, I feel that that's, that's the worst bit when you're packing before you um, you got to go. You don't want to go. Um, no. <laughs> but the, I, I find the worst bit when you walk into your own home. I don't know why. I just feel like, oh, <laughs> do you leave your bags at the front door for a week? Yeah, I need to get you guys to do my interior, and then I might feel very differently <laughs> about it. <laughs> you need a flat mud room. Totally. <laughs> yeah, an adjacent spa and a, and a gym <laughs> and uh, all those things. Pampering, continued pampering is always very nice. You guys have been business partners. Uh, you're business, your business partner for quite some time now, uh, and you're, you're a couple as well, which is really cool. Um, how do you manage to kind of make the whole thing work? And do you want to just kind of um, maybe David kick off with how you guys started Flax Studio? I'd love to hear about that. So, yeah, so we're, Mark and I have pretty much ran the business and been partners since day dot, you would pretty much say. So um, I think we both kind of realized or Mark did that um, if, if he wanted to date me, he had to date the studio. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and I think, yeah, I think it's a really dynamic and it's actually just like quite easy in a funny kind of way working together. I don't think could really imagine any other way in all honesty. I think, you know, like Mark gives me like, he's like my backbone, you know, for the studio and for life. But, you know, he's also my harshest critic, sometimes too harsh. So I want to slap him around a little bit. Um, but, you know, the, I think those moments is actually what what enables us to have what we've created, you know, in the last seven years. And, um, you know, it does kind of allow me to focus on the design and then Mark can, you know, do his part too. But it, it is a really wonderful thing to create together. Yeah. And it, it's it's really cool to to hear you say that because often the, the creative... I mean, you're both creative because obviously, uh, Mark, you've uh, been into films. We'll talk a bit more about that in a minute. But often it's the, the kind of lead creative in an organization gets all the acclaim and all the attention. And it's actually, you know, for me as well, like, for example, um, it's the team that supports me and the team around me and uh, the incredible people that work, that all do their role in making us a success is vital to the success of any business, right? You must find that you guys are kind of yin and yang in that regard. Yeah, we definitely are. And, um, you know, I think we both come from different backgrounds and we both have very different ideas, but collectively we've always sort of had the same vision um, and we always sort of meet in the middle. And I think that's creating, I think that's the dynamic that, you know, that balancing act is created. Quite often creatives can get kind of swamped in the business side of things and, and also the creative, but, you know, to try and sort of decipher through, through both um, and have some clarity, I think, can help. But, you know, Mark is equally weighted in, in the creative sense also. So, yeah. and I'm also quite business-minded too. So I think we both have a lot of yin and yang, but we definitely have a lot of the same thing too, which is A lot really of yang. Lovely. Or yin. 
<laughs> yeah, I was wondering a bit of the yin or a lot yeah. of the yang. Uh, yeah, it's going to be. <laughs> I couldn't quite work that out. I guess the reason <laughs> the reason why I say that is because you've named your studio Flax Studios, and people naturally, it's like me, Frost, you know, Collective. Um, yeah, you know, it's, if it, you know, the, I guess that makes a difference. If it's David and Mark Studio, it, you, I wouldn't be wouldn't be talking about that probably. So it's it's kind of cool to um, maybe you're like me going. You know, years later, go. Damn it! Why did I call myself after my what I call the business after my name? <laughs> yeah, I think I always knew. I I don't know. I think it just was like a natural thing. It's pretty pretty good surname, and it seems to go with yeah. everything. But you know, that's why I did. You know, in the early days, say it was a studio because you know I've never been one to want to do things by myself. You know, I love the collective, and I love working with you know, multiple authors and collaborators. So, you know, I always knew that if I was going to have a studio, it was it was with a team and what that team was going to be. I wasn't quite sure when I set it up, but, you know, it definitely is that team now. And I think that's, um, you know, what I've sort of always strived for. So, you know, I, I've, I've never really felt like, you know, it's just me, you know, even though it is my name on the door, it doesn't feel like that and it never has. Yeah. Okay. Well, I don't want to start an argument either. I don't want to start anything <laughs> between you two. It's been going so well so far. We're not rebranding though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll give my business card afterwards. Um, yeah. You're both country boys, which I was really, it really cool to hear because um, um, there's a few people we had on, on the show so far that have come from the country and it's kind of deep country and it's kind of uh, interesting to hear about how you ended up getting to where you are today. Can we talk about that? both of you like david you want to kick it off like um obviously you're you built this incredible business and incredible career um and massive reputation but talk about where where it all started as a kid yeah well i grew up in um bendigo which is two hours outside of melbourne and um you know my family uh have their own construction company well they're retired now but so yes you know always around construction and and business so you know i'm the youngest of um three siblings and, um, you know, very much from an early day, I was always super creative, pretty much the only creative in the family, all my, all my siblings and family are super sporty and, you know, football mad. You know, I think I had a curiosity for construction and, and space from a very early age. Um, you know, I, was, I remember I was drawing floor plans from like, you know, age four. Mum and dad have oh still got God. them. Oh, my God. Are you serious? <laughs> Yeah, we, we haven't. We, um, I was actually back home, you know, earlier this year and they'd been cl- clearing out one of the storage areas and um, they found all these earlier plans. And, you know, being a bit of a critic, I was like, gee, these are pretty good floor plans for, for a young kid. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of funny. You kind of think, oh, wow. I, you know, that that creativity or I don't know, it's, it must be some kind of innate thing as, as a young kid to, to be thinking about that. Yeah. I didn't know what a floor plan was until I was 32. I thought, I don't know, you, you earned, mm. you learned to, you're very young. Um, and how, how did you, how did you cope with that with your family being sporty and you weren't into sports and stuff? I mean, you know, what did you do instead? Like we, was there oh, a I farm think... and stuff or were you out on the farm or no, the country? We went on the farm. We're just, in a, in a city in, in, in the country. Oh, okay. But um, I think I was always a bit of a outcast, a little bit of a loner as a kid. Like I, I wouldn't say I had lots of friends or you know, I was definitely a mummy's boy, that's for sure. Um, but, you know, my family have always been super supportive of whatever I want to do from a very young age. So, you know, I think I was collectively just doing 
doing my own thing. But I, I did find it hard, definitely, especially as, it, you know, you're growing up into being a teenager and yeah. you're constantly feeling like that yeah. that outcast or, you know, that arty kid that, you know, doesn't is useless at sport, like any ball sport. It's like, God, oh, terrible at those. It's funny you <laughs> say that. Just hiding in the library away from everyone. Yeah. I don't know, but I, I think I look back now and I think, you know, I'm kind of thankful that I wasn't into all of that sort of stuff and I actually just ran my own race from a from an early age. So, you know, you know it's kind of empowering when you kind of think about it. But It was quite interesting. Income. I was like, just doing the final edit of, um, just doing the titles of the Ronaldinho documentary that my friends, the Douglas Brothers, have made. And I'm doing all the titles and going back and forth. And it's really interesting because his, his family was all about sport too. But he was the youngest. I don't know how many kids. There was quite a few. Um, and obviously became a, his in, the influence of being, you know, the whole family passionate about sport, uh, and and being the youngest, he was, incre- he was incredibly spoiled as well, which is quite interesting. I don't know if you were, um, but the whole yeah, family looked probably. after him and nurtured <laughs> him. Uh, but it's quite interesting how your family, what what your family does, uh, can influence your the direction you go in life, etc. And Mark, you're you're pretty open about your past. We chat the other day, and uh, I'd, I'd love to hear I'd love the listeners to hear about how you grew up. Yeah, so I, um, I my mum uh, grew up around Coburg in Melbourne, uh, and she was um, I think she was very much a part of what was uh, the heroin wave in the uh, the seventies and and early eighties. So as a young child, I was moved to a small town called Talangata, and so my mum was a single mum. She uh, eventually had seven children. Uh, but we were moved down there and that was probably our saving grace because my mum came from a relatively large family and all her siblings, uh, male and female, all ended up throughout the prison system. So um, uh, mum ended up down in Tlangada. So we were there for about, uh, till I was about 10. And um, she very much struggled with mental health. So she frequently went off um, to hospitals and we were... Uh, in and out of uh, foster care uh, during that period. But it was still somewhat stable. But then we moved to um, Western Sydney. So my mum was a bit flighty. So at that point, Talangata was very stable for her and she made the decision, unfortunately, to leave Talangata where we were very much supported by the local community. Uh, but when she entered uh, Western Sydney, there was literally no support for her. Mm-hmm. So we were very much in and out of... Uh, homeless shelters, we lived in caravan parks uh, and we also lived in emergency housing. So having a home uh, during my teen years wasn't a thing, it wasn't common and due to those factors my older siblings left relatively quickly so it then became uh, about myself, my mother and she had a lot of uh, partners that would come in and out of her life and they're all relatively violent, and during that period, she struggled with, um, you know, narcotics, gambling, and and drugs. So it got to the point where, when I was about thirteen, and I was kind of being dragged in and out of homeless shelters, there was a point where I had to make a decision that it was getting unsafe for me, uh, and it was also clear to my mum that it was an unsafe environment. However, she was still too trapped in that cycle to see it. So, yeah, I made the decision to leave uh, and from that point have never really looked back. Wow, that was a really, what, a, what an incredible upbringing you had. Wow. 
I mean, I, I can't imagine how how hard that would have been. And did, did, is all your siblings have you all kind of stuck together and support each other? No, not necessarily. Like I, uh, to be frank, I was very. Um, it's taken me a long time to admit it, but I was very kind of resentful of my older siblings for. Uh, disappearing and I kind of mm. I always kind of found that those acts were um, relatively selfish and even when I say that I acknowledge that that's a very hard thing to say um, but it's probably still something that I, I really struggle with because when I was young my focus was always my family so I was all everything I did was always about making sure that family was protected and stayed together and um, it was very hard for me to make the decision to leave. But when I did leave, I left when there was nothing left. Um, so for me, probably one of my saving graces is I have actually held relatively strong to that. So I haven't, I haven't actually really allowed many of my family members back into my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they all still uh, are suffering in a, a very kind of uh, environment of whether it be drug abuse in and out of the prison system um, or poverty in general. Mm-hmm. And it's always been a hard thing for me to kind of have one foot in and one foot out. Uh, and, I, and I did attempt it at various times, but for me it's been now about um, just looking forward. Wow. Um, I guess it, it, it's, it'd be really interesting to understand how, how home, because you, you guys predominantly what you do is, is design people's homes, right? You make them, make them beautiful, make them bespoke, make them unique for individuals. So to design someone's dream home, I mean, that, that must come from way down, way, way deeper in your experiences uh, than just a, you know, what it looks like. Yeah, I think that's where Dave and I really come together. And, you know, on the point before about um, you were talking to Dave about uh, what it's like kind of working together, I think for me, at the start of it, it was quite hard because we never had a honeymoon period of our relationship. Uh, and as soon as I met Dave, I knew that there was something special between us. And I knew there was I had to make a decision of whether I continued with my career or whether I support his. Mm-hmm. And I came in batting supporting for him, but it probably took me a good kind of 12 to 18 months to realise that from the onset of that decision, David had always seeing the studios being ours. Um, so it took me a while to kind of catch up with that. Um, but from that moment when I did catch up, uh, I understood that I never actually had let go of my my visions and my beliefs. I just started to kind of infuse those into the studio. Um, but the idea of home is really important for both Dave and I. So. Mm-hmm with uh, Dave's childhood and his own struggles and and mine, we always kind of came from a point of view of creating a nest. And even as a young kid, like when we were living, you know, in caravan parks, I used to go outside um, and literally create floor plans in the dirt. And I used to be obsessed about creating bedrooms and and kitchens and, and spaces that I never necessarily had. But the reason for that is because the, the home is a nest and it's about, it is all like we reference the word community a lot, but for me, community um, is not only about the broader community, but it's, it's about family. Mm. Yeah. And your own, your own personal or private space, because I mean, not, not everybody's in a family. Some people live by themselves. That that space is still vital, isn't it, for your recuperation, for your for your peace, for your you know your energy, etc. Oh, that's um, everything. 
And and you and you you start off in film, right, Mark? Yeah, that's great. Look, I think from a from a young from a young age, I was actually really interested in architecture, and I didn't know what architecture was. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll talk more about the the other activities and um, mentorship programs we do in our studio. But yep. for me, you know, none of my family actually worked, and nor and nor did they finish high school or or education. So that was never a priority. So. The idea of wanting to be something was something that I was almost like a dark secret that you weren't allowed to share. But mm-hmm. I very much kind of knew that architecture and design was something that I was really excited by. Mm-hmm. But when I hit the age of about 10, 11, I, all I wanted to be was a politician. So I was very much obsessed with Paul Keating and uh, I used to kind of watch everything that he did. But I then was a little bit insecure that I didn't have those quick witty one-liners that he did so I thought oh, there's no way I can be a, uh, a politician and I remember one day watching um, you know the good thing about uh, being in and out of um, refuges and homeless shelters is they used to give you movie stubs because they had to find something for you to do during the day yeah. so we were given these movie stubs and uh, one of the first films I ever saw in a cinema was The Little Mermaid and it was really it, it was the probably biggest epiphany, epiphany moment I've had where I was sitting there and, you know, this is a film about someone finding their voice. And I realised, um, without saying it crudely, that you could kind of manipulate an audience through cinema. And so rather than focusing on politics, and the reason why I want to kind of be in politics, because during the 80s, if people can remember, um, the people that were being attacked were, you know, First Nations community and single mums. And I, you know, I was in environments with both First Nations and my mum was a single mum and she was also, you know, and my family had been um, severely affected by heroin. So these were the groups that were being attacked. So whenever I watched the news, whenever I heard politicians, they were attacking my family and it wasn't what I saw. What I saw were people that just needed support. What I saw was people that needed employment. What I saw was people that needed uh, purpose and an acknowledgement of their experiences. So for me, cinema then became that thing that I could, hey, I could kind of change people's points of view through showing them what the experience is actually like. Did you start to, how did you learn how to, because you're a film director, uh, by yeah. trade, how, how did you learn yeah. that? Did you go to art school or? Oh, look, it's, it's, it's it, yeah, look, it's quite a funny story. I, um, so I was working 40 hours a week during high school uh, and so I would um, start packing at Coles at 3 a.m. Mm-hmm. to uh, 8 a.m. and then I'd go off to school and then I'd go to Franklin's from uh, 4 to 11. And um, and so I was always really conscious that I would never get the grades to enter communications. And at that point, um, afters, you had to be about 28 to get in. And so I was trying to get into a communications degree that needed a high TR. Mm-hmm. I think I got a TR of 60. And then I was, when I got that TR, I was so ashamed because everything I had done was to get to uni so I could be a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. So I went off and, um, and basically just got a job in a call center. And uh, I was only there for about seven months and I was um, 18. And I just decided I, there needed to be a shift in what I was doing. So I had uh, always had a bit of an obsession with Vietnam. So I went over to Vietnam for six weeks and I was on this uh, little local bus and it was full of uh, local community. But at the front of the bus were these, this lesbian couple and it was the first time I'd ever seen a queer couple 
uh, being intimate. And so we're on this bus. This bus pulls up at this small place at 3 a.m. in the morning. They jump out and I stupidly grab my backpack and jump off with them. And they looked at me surprised as the bus is leaving and they're like, what are you doing? There's literally only one little hut here. We're actually on a a little honeymoon. Um, (laughs) And so I stayed with them for the entire trip and it turns out they were – they were best friends with Sue Maslin, who was a producer. And I told them, they were the first people I told that I want to be a filmmaker. So they, I told them about that. And they said, look, I think you need to, because I was in, in Sydney at the time, you need to contact Ray Lawrence. Um, so I contacted Ray Lawrence and begged for a job and essentially assisted him for a few years before I started film school. That is so cool. Because it, it's, <clears throat> Ray Lawrence lives behind me in um, Avalon. And, and as I, I think I said the other day that... Um, I, I worked on a poster, a Jindabyne poster with him. Um, yeah. Uh, a while back, I don't know, maybe 10 years or so ago now. But yeah, what a great guy and what a great experience for you. I mean, geez, isn't that incredible how that, you know, that kind of inc- your inquisitiveness kind of doing something which kind of just went against maybe what you thought you should be doing um, turned out to be a game changer for you. Oh, look, it was completely career. amazing. And, and when, when I was hired, it was to be his driver. And... Um, so I said, yes, yes, I'll like, would love to do that job. And then it was about four weeks in and they said, look, can we have your driver's license? And, uh, I said, look, I don't actually have one. I don't drive. And there was a moment where they're about to say, okay, well, that's the job. So you have to leave. But I think they felt sorry for me. So they ended up, um, hiring a driver. So I still to this day don't have my driver's license, but the, the reality of that is it meant that I spent the entire time sitting next to Ray Lawrence and learning everything from, from him during that period, which was really amazing. Fantastic. Really, really cool. Um, and David, how did you get started in interiors? So I finished high school and then um, I, I pretty much just wanted to work. Um, I just wanted to get into interior design also. So I, I, um, I was accepted into RMIT, which was you know, always deemed the best course, um, in Melbourne, Australia. So, um, I started there and then I remember when I was there for like six months, but I ended up dropping out. It just was not what I expected. And I kind of felt like I didn't fit into that course. So I did drop out. Um, and I remember the lecturers were like, what are you doing? And, but, you know, I think at that time I was sort of like, well, I think I just needed to discover myself and then I ended up taking a year off and then I ended up coming out and, you know, I always sort of say my life sort of started at 19. Um, and, you know, this is sort of when I found found my, some really close friends that I'm still friends with now and, you know, really became, you know, who I am. And then I started, then I thought I actually will, will start a business uh, marketing course because I, I was quite interested in that also. So I finished that degree at Swinburne, but then ultimately I was called back to interior design. So I, I enrolled in interior architecture at um, Swinburne and completed four years there. But in my final year, it was the, when the GFC hit and um, I was always obsessed with Heckerfield and Guthrie. Um, and I, I remember in that, in my final year, it was the year that they designed the Ivy in um, Sydney, mm. and um, you know, I, I thought it was the most amazing thing. It was actually really quite incredible, um, and I I literally just hounded HB and G to work there, and I pretty much said I'll, I'll do anything because no one was employing anyone at that stage because it was you know the world was basically going to end. So we thought, and then I offered offered my um, hospitality skills. 
<laughs> so I started, um, you know, God, I remember I was cleaning, cleaning the toilets, I was emptying the rubbish bins, I was filling, what, I was doing whatever, whatever I can. I remember they had the finishes library on the top level and I had to empty it out and carry everything down, um, you know, four flights of stairs or something like that. But I remember Kerry um, at the time obviously took a liking to me and, you know, she started taking me under her wing and um, it was the year that she defected being a part of the, the, the trio and set up her own studio, KPDO, and I was very fortunate to be offered a job with her. And um, I remember I was just thought, wow, I can't believe that I've got a job with Kerry Phelan, you know, like I've been obsessed with her for years and years and, you know, still to this day I, I think how lucky, how lucky am I that I was, you know, I had that opportunity to, to work so closely with, with someone so brilliant. You weren't her driver, were you? <laughs> I was. Oh, were you? Have you, <laughs> you got know, a license? I, mean, I, 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 you know, I, I was such a working class kid, you know, like I, I've just always worked my whole life and, yeah. you know, had part-time jobs, you know, across, God, I could rattle off so many jobs that I've had, but, you know, I've never been afraid of doing anything, you know, and, mm-hmm. And I think that's the thing now as a, as a boss and, and a mentor and, and everything, you know, there's still nothing that we don't do in the studio. We're so hands-on, we're in the trenches, you know, and, and I think I will never not be like that. Mark always tells me off because my default when I'm stressed is I'll start like sweeping or vacuuming. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, literally you've got the biggest presentations of your life and you're <laughs> vacuuming. It's like... <laughs> what the hell? Um, oh my but, you God. Know, I just had a vision of Freddie Mercury, man. You're not one who I got to break free. <laughs> totally. <laughs> well, actually, we've got a vacuum cleaner that you strap onto your back and you oh buckle God. it up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but the problem is, is when he is sweeping and vacuuming and that deadline is looming, he looks like he's in complete bliss. So I always akin him to a, a Teletubby. So it just makes me so furious because he looks like he's got no cares in the world, although I know he's doing it out of stress. <laughs> and you're stressed out like crazy watching yeah. this. Oh, my, watching that and the clock. Yeah. So it's very, it's very Freddie Mercury. Yeah. Mindfulness. <laughs> well, you know, we're, we're getting a few things done. We're getting, getting the floors cleaned and, you know, de-stressing me. Hey, you know, I think that's, you, I think that's the thing, guys, because, I mean, I, I do the same thing. I like... I started <laughs> rearranging bookshelves or vacuuming. I got this Dyson animal thing the other day. Oh, my God, have you tried that? That's awesome. No, let's talk about that, Dave, because, I mean, I, I think that that's actually a thing, and I think it shouldn't be something that's, like, frowned on, because I always think, oh, my God, I'm, what am I doing? I'm deflecting. I'm, I'm procrastinating. I'm kind of removing myself from the problem, and I'm doing something which I find really mindless and easy, and I enjoy it, you know, tidying up or vacuuming or whatever it might be, painting. Um, or doing an easier task, an easier job. Do you find so? Do you deliberately remove yourself from the hard thing that you can't solve into yeah. a space of comfort, right? Definitely, and I think you know, wearing so many hats during the day and working across so many projects that um, ultimately, I think it's natural that one wants to default to the easiest thing and and avoid you know tackling the hardest thing, but. To be honest, I think earlier days I was procrastinating a lot and I think even at uni I was a massive procrastinator mm-hmm. and I always leave everything to the last minute. Um, but I definitely think it's a, a I've learned to uh, overcome that purely because 
um, you know, time is money and, and time is precious if, you know, we're, we're working across these projects. But I definitely think I've become better at that and have been sort of training myself to become more um, focused in those areas. I still love to procrastinate and still focus on other things. I think that um, I, I used to – procrastination is seen as a negative thing, but if it's – I used to find that it was because I didn't know what to do. I was looking for – an idea or ideas and kind of, you know, spending that time to kind of work out what was the best way forward. And a big, but it can be intimidating because if you feel like, Oh my God, I'm failing because I don't, I can't get this thing done because I don't have the solution. It starts to work against you. Doesn't it? You start to feel like, Oh my God, I'm no good at this or Mm. I'm never going to solve this. Why am I feeling this versus spending the time and energy on solving the problem? And I found like, over time, if I had a whole bunch of projects on, that's why I say yes to everything. If I have a whole bunch of things on, I create the situation where I have multiple layers of projects that at times other parts of the projects are easier and I jump into the easier one and get some stuff done there and then kind of I get confident again and go back up to the harder problems. I don't know if you find that. That's just me. Or, um, oh, that's, you find that's Dave to a T. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I know it can be frustrating, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> I know others no. that find that frustrating, but I mean, you know, this thing is when you when you're when you're being creative, when you're doing a job, when you're being, trying to be the best you can at all that you do. There's times when you feel like you're that you you, can, you can't deliver or you need some time out. I find it really, I mean, I find that interesting um, how people different people tackle that. Yeah, look, I think I think one of the hard things about design that I've noticed is coming from the world of cinema is. Uh, procrastination and that uh, playful place of ponder filmmakers are in that stage all the time and um, and often when you're creating a work that works um, creation can take up to seven years um, of starting and stopping but you're very much in this world of kind of just ponder and at the moment that you have all the information you get that project green lit that's when you go into production and that's when it's all about process and all about getting that information out. But the reality is you've had a good seven years to really have that time mm. where with design, you don't actually get that. You're literally from one pro- from one green light yeah. to the next green light, yeah. which I think as a creative is quite taxing and is quite tough. So um, that's something that we're really negotiating in how do we kind of manage that and particularly during COVID, it's hard because I think the way that uh, creatives do manage it is they manage it through international travel. Mm. Dave and I don't stop when we're in Australia. We live and work on the same street. Uh, we're always in the studio. There's not a day that we're not in the studio. Mm-hmm. But when we go overseas or even interstate, we actually do turn off. And that's when the creative juices and all those ideas and excitement kind of come through and we then, you know, allow that to foster through the next upcoming projects. But during COVID, there's no kind of release of that. Well, your Insta is never stop designing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, no, so, you, so you literally don't true. stop. You don't stop. Oh, yeah, you never do yeah. stop, do you? It's, yeah, Dave's, Dave's Insta's never stop designing and mine's Thursday fortnight which uh, is always was around the Thursday fortnight welf- welfare checks. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. So, <laughs> those two yeah. worlds coming together. There's your yin and yang. Viz. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, well, that's a good reminder of. of so you're always you're going. always running that cycle. Yeah, I think the thing is, is it just never take no matter how good it can be, just never take that for granted. You know, like it's like you want to make sure you precious is precious, and it's like that flow of opportunities that are coming to you every day um, are are what make you you know thrive and um, do great things so h- how did you how did you evolve from going from kpdo uh david to then starting flax studio yeah so i think i i was in my fourth year of working with kerry so i actually didn't have too much industry experience um in all honesty i was still very much considered the junior um so i think you know it came a point and i think i was like 20 28 and i and i decided that I actually just wanted to move to London and I, I had big pipe dreams of working for Ilsa Crawford's mm-hmm. studio. Uh, I never applied or never got there in the end, obviously, but I had finished up at KPDO and then, you know, had a, you know, eight weeks before I was going to leave, had the visa ready. And then, you know, I just started getting a few little incidental moments um, and projects through friends. And then I started designing them and, you know, I, I think when you are the junior, you, you don't really, you're not exposed to running full projects or you don't really know what your aesthetic is because you're pretty much just drawing what you're doing for your boss and that that particular studio. So uh, once I started finishing a few of these little projects, I actually started to think, oh, wow, actually pretty good at this. And, you know, I was, I was quite innocently thinking that too and then um you know i started getting a little bit more money and then you know i was really kind of enjoying myself and i'm kind of one of those people that you know i was i was really happy in that moment so i did or i do say that i accidentally set up flax studio because i had no intention of setting up a studio not with four years experience and then you know but I, I decided to, and, I, and, and at the time I was thinking, well, if I'm going to have a studio, it's going to be a bloody awesome studio because I was kind of like, you know, I was kind of looking around the industry and, you know, looking at other studios and I'm like, well, you know, I want to have a studio that's unique, uniquely me, my point of view, and, you know, that one that kind of breaks down the barriers and, and you know, none of this sort of like tunnel vision. It's sort of like actually I wanted to have a, a far more inclusive studio that, you know, opened its doors to everyone. So... From the outset, I, I already kind of had a strategy and approach that I wanted Flax Studio to be. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, during 2014, I was basically just in that foundation period, just exploring and 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 creating the brand and working with Mike Gesser, who, who has been working with us from day dot, um, who does all our, um, our branding and marketing and strategy with us too. But... Uh, you know, it just sort of really grew organically and I was exploring different typologies, residential, retail, hospitality and, you know, and then this is sort of when I launched and then I met Mark in 2015 and then it's really just evolved from then. Should we talk about how you guys met? Yeah, so we met online and then uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, we actually met online and then we actually, we did have a breakfast date um, the next day, um, very elegant. And, uh, yeah, it wasn't the best date. We always kind of laugh about this. Um, <laughs> it, it really went a bit pear shaped. It was sort of sitting down having breakfast and then Mark, 
Mark said to me, what, what are your politics? And I was like, oh, I was thinking, oh, oh God, here we Jesus. go again. Another, why do I always date these guys that <laughs> are super political and like trying to think that he was trying to think, he was trying to gather whether I was just some vacuous queen <laughs> um, that had actually, you know, he's like, oh, here is this designer thinks he's it in a bit or something like that. So he was just trying to suss me out. And then um, I remember when he asked me that question and then I said, oh, I'm not really that into politics. And then he said, oh, what? Politics is life. And then it was literally just crickets. <laughs> I think we, did. We, we wrapped up the eggs and bacon and then, um, yeah, said, see you later. But later that night I did text him and I said, oh, hey. And then, you know, it was kind of on for young and old that night. And, and from there on, but I always laugh. He kind of rocked up with a garbage bag and hasn't left. <laughs> <laughs> there was no garbage bag. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it, it, it was actually quite funny. It's, um, you, talk, you talk about those moments in your life and I, um, I had always been um, in relationships. So um, pretty much from the, from the age of 16 to 30, I'd, I'd been in a relationship and um prior to meeting Dave, I'd been single for three years and it was really a focused period where I was like, look, I, I don't want to be in a relationship. I want to focus on uh, my film. But then Dave came along and in that moment where I asked him about politics and it was dead silent, weirdly, I did know that we were going to end up together, even though it was so awkward because I could kind of see through, um, I could see through him in that, in that moment and I kind of got him. And um, it just kind of felt right. Yeah, that's cool. Wow, I was I was um, just and, and 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 you know that, that I, I think what I was trying to kind of understand was whether um, yeah what what his point of view was. And I think I worked out in that one moment where he was saying that he wasn't necessarily into politics. It wasn't that he wasn't into politics. It was clear that he felt uncomfortable talking about politics because politics, unfortunately, has become this thing that kind of divides people mm. and I don't think he wanted Dave's not the type of person that wants to be controversial and he doesn't want to be divisive um, and in that moment I understood that um, so from there uh, I think now his engagement with politics is just understanding it's actually just a conversation yeah. of ideas rather than uh, having to be confrontational. Funny, and I think you know I kind of think back to these sort of foundations of our relationship but you know like Mark's been highly instrumental in like extracting what is my point of view as a designer you know it's sort of like you know very early days there was sort of work being produced you know and there's no clear delineation between who, who it could be by and mark you know definitely you know this growth of me as a designer is sort of you know highly related to mark because you know he's my biggest critic and he has this ability to you know extract my thoughts and 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 point of view and and place that into our work how do you pick a, a flak project it'd be really cool to hear how you've defined that then i've always said that i like our work to be you can't really pick it and you know i think up until now people have been able to pick it but i think you know the industry's definitely had a shake up and i think you know that kind of leads to us that you know our philosophy is that I want people to walk into our spaces and know that we haven't been here, you know, and I mean that like these are highly thought out spaces that, you know, we've spent years documenting and, you know, and there's so much love and passion gone into creating these. But, you know, when I say 
as if we haven't been there. You know, it's like, you know, our projects always reference the past. You know, I'll pilfer from all different, you know, eras and decades and, you know, I'll mash up lots of different furniture and, and textiles or materiality from from all different eras and I think that is what really defines a flak project. They They become, you know, they have a sense of permanence, they have a personality, they are a nest and they are serene and they are minimal sometimes or they're maximus. So, you know, they they cover a lot of ground. Do you, do you treat every single project differently? Definitely. Um, and, you know, we, we always from day one have wanted to keep our studio small. We're at 10 people now mm-hmm. and our max is probably 12. And yeah. purely we want to keep it that way because we're so involved and I'm so involved in every single project that, you know, it's the only way to control the design. And, you know, it's super important that each project is different and it does reflect our client. You know, I'm very happy to say as soon as I, we, you know, hand the key over after completing the build that it feels like their home and it always sort of does. And that's purely through our conversations and our, our approach to how we engage with design along the whole journey. And, you know, we've kind of set up our studio in our own way, you know, and each stage, whether it's by Mark or myself or designers with our team, that, you know, it it's always about design. It's always about the journey and that education into what this space is going to be for them. And I think one of the reasons why I was able to transition from cinema to design so easily is both Dave and my process was very similar. So when I first started dating Dave and he was working on these projects, uh, it was done out of his home at the time and his entire lounge room would be full of books, not not necessarily magazines, not Pinterest, not Instagram. It, it was books mm. and it was books on fashion it was architecture it was design it was cinema it was food and i i have i had a very similar process Mm. so although my stories were always about people uh, living on the fringe and uh, they're also always stories about people seeking employment and education and often homeless i would always look at architecture food uh, and uh, and also sometimes perfume ads like it was more about creating a tone and a feeling and dave did the same thing Mm. which um was really enjoyable and easy to kind of jump into. We still do. It's sort of like, it's just like, you know, we've got an amazing library in our office and it's just like full of books and, you know, like, you know, it's a natural thing for for me to be looking through a book. You know, obviously I do look at Instagram, but, you know, it's not my, it's not a source of inspiration for me. It's, It's really those ideas come from travel and from those books, but, you know, it does become a big part of our design process. And I think that's what does define a flat project because you kind of look at it and you kind of think, oh, it feels, there's something about it that feels, you know, like it belongs or I've been, I might have been there or felt or experienced it. And I think that's the energy and the tone that we always want to try and capture. We often talk about an emotional response rather than an aesthetic or an idea. So it's always about how you get into that emotional feeling of that space. And most of the time with our clients, regardless of what they may divulge to us, they do come to us at at key milestones in their life. So a lot of the time the response is actually that milestone and, and dealing with that, whether it be 
their children leaving home, whether it be uh, death or whether it be marriage or whether it be divorce, there's always a milestone that kind of brings them to the point where they're like, I need to create my nest uh, and I'm going to trust you with that. And do they do they come with anything? Do they they say, look, I, all that I have, I don't want anymore? Or do they say, hey, I must have that chair. I must have that piece of art. I must have that blah, blah, blah. We might tell them <laughs> what's going to come. Yeah, uh, so nothing, honest, basically. We kind of have a bit of a laugh. Like, we, like our, our, a lot of our clients, we kind of think they're almost like camping in a funny kind of way. They've been, you know, sitting on the sofa that they fell in love with, you know, 20 years ago or something like that, and they're ready to move on. So mm. it very much is a journey about, you know, embarking onto this this world that we're creating together for them and, you know, of course, there's things that come in from from the past, and I think that's the lovely thing about a home is that they're 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 rich in personality and layers of life. So you know, we we love a bit of complexity thrown into the space too. But uh, they're they're very much up for the journey and to have that holistic approach to the space. Yeah, I think if we were to pigeonhole our clients, um, the the main thing I'd say about them is that um, they really value uh, things. In, in the fact that they're not interested in um, getting the, the latest thing. They're about buying things once and buying mm. things right. So yeah. when we walk through their homes, again, as Dave referenced, they've had them for 20 years um, and there's nothing in their homes that is about a trend. So when they're wanting to um, make this uh, journey with us, they've been thinking about this for maybe 10, 15 years and planning for it. So it's definitely something that they have planned for and only really plan to do once, um, which is is great. And I think that's, yeah, it's really common with everyone that comes our way. Yeah, that's re- that's really cool. I mean, I, I, I guess now I kind of realise, because you also don't, um, you don't allow mood boards in your design process. Is that right? So like you don't, reference Instagram or Pinterest all the time, what's current, what's latest, if you're looking at books and you're looking for the, looking at the past also around and that combination of old and new and art, et cetera. How do you make, yeah, look, it all, how do you make look, that all work? How do, how do you kind of express your vision? And obviously it's incredibly eclectic too, isn't it? When you look at it, you go, as a, as a real, like it works obviously, <laughs> but that's, <laughs> that's a skill in itself. <laughs> Especially to do it quickly. Yeah, no, but it's like I can imagine those homes you do look like they've been done over a long period of time, but they're not. I have, yeah. And look, um, you know, things that you know, it takes time to build these houses up, and you know, you know, they're built over time and lots of conversations, lots of meetings. But yeah, you know, to answer the first question of that, I don't allow mood boards into the office and. That is purely because I don't see why you would pay Flax Studio and show me your mood board. And, you know, the the clients will always have a preconceived notion of what the space is going to be or they've dreamt about one of our other projects and they think it's going to be like that. But I definitely do not like looking at anyone's mood board because it kind of puts me, it, it shifts me into a different gear or like, I, I just I just think it destroys the the design process from the start. And I think this is the whole fun thing about design is like the journey is amazing creating these spaces and I want clients to be engaged with it from day one and they need to trust me and the studio always. Otherwise, it's a total disaster, you know. So the nice thing is that they might have 
I think I always tap into what they want. Like weirdly, I I will sit in a client briefing and I might not take too many notes. And I think they're kind of on the back end thinking, God, is this guy even listening to us? What, yeah. what is he doing? But I immediately always know what I want to do for that space. And I kind of already feel like I know the client from mm. lots of conversations we've had before. And I want to take them on that journey and that exploration into my mind and what the studio is going to create for them. So that, that is very much about that. And I do, you know, you kind of think about the relationships that we're forging, you know, they've all become such great friends of ours, mm. but um, you know, their life does change a lot after finishing these spaces and they're not just a home. It's been a journey and experience and they've learned so much, you know, like we've introduced them to a whole new world and they'll look at design completely differently, design and art and, and spaces completely differently. So I think it's, it's, a really big part of our introduction to the process. And I think, I think subconsciously it actually does take our clients a while to actually understand why they came to us in the first place, mm. but they always get there. And in the end, uh, I would say this of all, almost every single client we've worked with, we always receive a really beautiful handwritten letter um, or email that, um, confirms that and they never talk about the kitchen and they never talk about the bathroom what they talk about is the intimate experiences that they're now having within that space um and one of our i think one of our number one moments in uh our studio's history was one of our clients sent us again a handwritten letter and it was uh, their top 10 things that they loved about the home nice. and it was all about experience it was all about being able to sit down with their children uh it was all about um the ability and and the function that the home has to kind of allow those moments in life. And that's what we talk about with our designers a lot. We're not creating a kitchen to cook. We're creating a kitchen that you're going to hear that your child is pregnant. You're going to find that your parent has just passed. You're going to find that you've just got that job. You've just lost that job. Like that's what these spaces actually are. Um, and that's what we always get back uh, when we complete a project and it's usually three, six months in and it's really lovely because it just confirms like that's the way that we think and that's the way that we design. That's fantastic. And do, do the people continue to, do they feel like it's done? Do they, can they just live no. in it? Do they, feel, no. do they feel like they have to keep adding to it? Or it's, it's, not, it's, not that, it's not that they think it's not done. It's that I think that it, it's such an intimate relationship. So they they're, they're texting daily uh and <laughs> sometimes the texts are, are literally like um hey what do you think about this book or what do you think about this or what do you think about that what so socks should the I wear? homes are always relatively complete but they're always relatively there's, there's an organic nature to them but um a big part of what we do with our clients as well is we do see art as architecture so both and dave both dave and i have kind of come through art ourselves so we spend a lot of time educating our clients on art. So all our clients actually become art collectors. So a lot of the conversations yeah. are about sharing information about art and artists, which we love. That's really cool because art, art plays a big part in all of, I was going to come to that, in, in all of your interiors. And that's, for a lot of people, art is quite intimidating, right? I guess you're helping people to feel like it's not highbrow, it's just part of the visual, um, I guess, intrigue or... Um, diversity in your in your in your place 
Um, yeah. I guess the thing is, like, it's like, it's like buying a couch. It's like they're, they're often pretty expensive these days. It actually is quite a commitment. So buying art or buying a couch or buying some, you know, beautiful, you know, cutlery and stuff like that, you make any decision maybe once for your home forever. Hmm. Um, how, do, how do you navigate that with the art side of things? I honestly think it just comes down to you either love it or you don't love it, you know, and I think that's the funny thing about art. It's just actually a conversation and it's an engagement yeah. with the gallery and, you know, we often always, you know, try and uh, introduce our clients to the artists too and then you, you, you develop a real connection with the piece and and with, you know, sometimes with just the artist's process or thoughts, you know, and I think I'm I look at collecting like... I often will just really engage with the artist too and I'm not overly phased by what piece I'll buy because uh, I I don't look at it as an aesthetic kind of thing. I'm looking at it from how it makes me feel and mm. the levels of conversation that they can create in the space. And I think that gets back to the complexities of our interiors is that, you know, I always say I do not want art to match the interior. Like that's like not the conversation no. I want to be having. It, it, it's about you know, a stable of artists and, and, you know, a journey into that world. And I think that's when you start to break down that it's not scary, it's not intimidating. You know, and I think people have this sort of like weird perception of it. But when you actually get down to it, it's like it, it's it's part of life and it's really nice to have have pieces around you. Like we, we love collecting. It's, yeah. it's, it's such... Every piece I can remember when we bought it or why we bought it, and it doesn't matter how much it cost. You know, some of some of our some of my our most dear pieces were like two hundred dollars. You know, but you know, at the time it was probably expensive. But and yeah. we, but we loved. There's a reason why we bought it. I think one of the the, the three kind of fundamental things that we work with clients uh, with architecture goes back to what I was referencing before about these spaces are about you know. Um, change and moments and so when we're talking about art it's from the very inception and we always tell clients you never purchase a work you purchase the artist so there's a lot of work from our studio to kind of educate clients and match clients up with particular artists based on um, them and, and and who these people are so you fall in love with the artist rather than the artist uh, than the artist should say and then the other thing is is just making sure that uh, as Dave referenced Art's not decoration. Art is architecture. So art is fundamental to the way that you feel within the, in the space. Um, and it's always important to make sure that that navigation of how you work through a home does come down to the art because, you know, people spend so much money on the base build. But then at the end of the day, when you're walking through, you're not looking at the concrete beams. You're actually, um, your mood's being changed and developed by the pieces around you. And that for us is really important. And that's, that's always the conversation with clients. We've always sort of thought like, and it's probably come a little bit later with, you know, personal growth and development and understanding what the studio is and who you are and what your position is as a designer. But, you know, I do look at our work as kind of an artwork itself, you know, and, and it's, it's only become more, layered with other artists and other voices within that space too. So it, it is it's a really quite dynamic thing between between both. And I think there is a there's a strong similarity between uh, 
I don't know if it's a global thing or an Australian thing, but people's connection to art and politics is relatively similar. Um, there's a fear for both art and politics because they're ideas and people feel like if they don't get the idea or if they don't understand the idea, they're stupid. Um, and and that's, my, that's my take on it anyhow. I might be wrong, but I feel like a lot of the time people fear both art and politics because they think that, again, if they don't understand it, they're somehow stupid. And that's not the case. At the end of the day, it's literally just ideas and conversations and it's contradictory and it changes and it's messy and it's sloppy. Um, and I think the reason why I get it is because... You know, I grew up outside all these social norms. So I always felt that I was stupid. I always felt that I didn't belong. But then once I entered, uh, you know, the world that I was always looking at, I realised that you everyone belonged. Well, not only I belonged, but everyone was the same. Everyone had the same level of insecurity. But I think I was able to break it down a lot quicker. Um, and then, so even with our clients, regardless of... Um, how amazing and smart and intelligent they are, there's still this kind of fear with um, art that we break down from the get-go. It's, it's like you, could, you could say the same with food. I mean, majority Hands of down. us walk into a, a supermarket not knowing what the hell to buy. <laughs> We're going to buy yeah. groceries. There's only a few of us become chefs, you know. There's only mm. a few of us Can become you? interior designers. There's only, you know, like, it's like us human beings don't seem to know how to do it ourselves mm. for some reason. Yeah, and I think that that moment I was referencing about watching The Little Mermaid, I had a similar experience when I was 19 and I went to uh, the restaurant Benelong at the mm. Opera House and I remember having uh, this meal and everything just fell away and in that moment I thought I could achieve anything and it was just amazing that one meal could make you feel that anything was possible. Uh, and I often think about dessert. my... Totally. <laughs> but I often think about my mum and the fact that I know she's never had a meal like that. Mm. I know that, uh, you know, I, I don't know if she's actually sat in a restaurant. Uh, her idea of a meal, if, sh if she's had a meal, would have been um, maybe a Chinese takeaway container of uh, lemon chicken. Mm -hmm. um, but that idea of finding pleasure and joy in food, one of my favourite films is, is Babette's Feast that kind of looks at that, um, is quite quite a thing. So I think you're right, food, politics, art, it's all hand in hand. Yeah, it's what you're exposed to. You guys have done an incredible project recently, one of my favourite places, the Ace Hotel. I've uh, stayed in both the London one and the one in New York. That's probably more of them too, one in uh, LA too, isn't it? Yeah. Um, you've done the new one for Sydney. Tell me about that. That's so exciting. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. It's just released um, last week, so it's three years in the making, so it's kind of nice to release it to the world that we're actually the, the design partner for it. But do you know what? It's been like a total dream designing this hotel. Like it, it is the biggest project we've ever worked on. But funnily enough, it's been kind of one of the most pleasurable and easiest in a funny kind of way. I think that's Don't purely... Don't tell the client, but yeah. No, I know. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> Yeah, which what there's a few, <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, it, it was funny. I think the the funny thing is it, it does come down to relationships, and that that Ace, you know, they always had their eyes on us um, mm. to design this ho hotel when they did open up in Australia. And you know, I remember um, the day that we got this phone call. It was a it was like a public holiday in Melbourne, and it was a there was a voicemail on our studio. We never actually ever look at this voicemail. 
Um, so please, if anyone's listening, don't leave a voicemail. <laughs> but anyway, we did listen to this voicemail. And I remember it was like, hi, this is the director of the Ace Hotel. We're coming to um, Sydney um, like in five days um, and we want to meet you. And I, I remember listening to the phone call and I was so surreal. I was like, what? This is like crazy. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, so we weren't actually on the list of the developer had put um, forward. I think they'd interviewed so many um, top studios from across Australia, but we weren't on that. We kind of considered that we were too small and not probably the right fit for the project. But um, we ended up coming up out of our own costs in um, to Sydney and we purely just had a chat about our, our work and we showed a lot of our, our new projects. We just finished the Boyd House and Sandy Bay House. So there's quite a lot of houses that, you know, they really connected with and we just had a great conversation. I remember we like pouring um, sparkling water and we like shaking in front of them because we were so nervous. But I think, <laughs> I think we just, it was just the right fit. And, um, you know, it, it has been an amazing journey. And funnily enough, we've designed nearly all of it over Zoom. Like we yeah. did a, a bulk of the design in 20, all of 2019, bit of back and forth to America, which was really good. And we oh. did, we did uh, cement our relationship with them. And it was really lovely. But yeah, like the last two years now, and now that we can't even go to Sydney to procure it, but it's kudos to the whole entire team for this because it is a really amazing fate that we've pulled this off during a pandemic well, mm. we do a lot of um yeah absolutely jesus i mean it's incredible we, we do a lot of property marketing and property development place making and stuff so for the last must be 16 years uh there's been yeah this one they're gonna have so house we're gonna have ace hotel like everyone said that you know in yeah. sydney forever <laughs> Yep. And it's really cool. I was like, why aren't they it's actually here? happening? Yeah, it's actually happening for what? It, I, what is it? I hope it is. It sure, it sure is. <laughs> it, yeah, it's um, late summer. It's well needed, isn't it? I mean, there's um, there's is. not a huge amount of variety here. Um, I think, I, yeah, I think it's going to be a real game changer for Sydney and Australia. And mm. you know, it it was a challenging, really challenging task to design it. And you know, there's been so many ups and downs personally for me, like to, to overcome fears of, am I doing the right thing for this or whatever, but you know, purely you just break it down and it does become, you know, innately right for what ACE is. And I think, you know, I think they have this weird ability to activate community spaces and that lobby is yeah. like everything. So, you know, I can't wait to see this Sydney uh, lobby really become a new heart of Surrey Hills, I think. Yeah. How, how, how do you design, because obviously the, the homes that you've designed have been very intimate and you've been very closely working with the people who are going to live and sleep and breathe and play and die and whatever in them. Um, how, how do, you do, do you design the rooms for people who you don't know? I think, with, I think with our process in general, we actually don't change the process regardless of what we're working on. Mm -hmm. So we treat everyone... Um, as in it is a residential project. So, for example, um, with ACE, it was really clear, and I can probably say this now, but it was really clear from uh, the developer. So as Dave was referencing, we weren't even on the list. So we only had, when we came up to see them, um, the developer wasn't even aware that we were seeing them. So we saw them in a 15-minute tea break um, when they were meeting and, and had these um, scheduled meetings for these other designers. But we always approached it like they were just a residential client. And when they were actually coming out um, back to Australia to see the schematic presentation, 
Um, we contacted the directors independently um, without the developer's knowledge and just said, hey, we know that you you live and work in hotels. It's probably not enjoyable. How about you actually just come and stay at our house? And we didn't expect for them to say yes, but one of the directors said yes. So um, she literally spent uh, seven days on our couch watching RuPaul's Drag Race. And oh, that at night. At night. No, <laughs> and but, you still yeah. got the job. But it very much. Oh, no, by that stage, we had the job. We had the job. We had the job. But. But the, re- the thing is that it really cemented the relationship and we were very clear with them and the developer that we um, we can't just rock up to a room and present. We have to spend a lot of time with the client. So, again, on the back of our own finances, we were back and forth to LA and New York quite regularly, mm. spending time with them, going to galleries, getting a sense of who they were because what had been put forward was essentially this kind of spreadsheet saying you're presenting on this day and then in six six weeks you're presenting on this day and we're like we we can't work like that it actually needs to be a little bit more intimate and in the end the developer came back to us and said look although you broke all the rules in the fact that you weren't allowed to have direct contact at the early start you've actually ensured that the project moved really swiftly really fast and everything got signed off um, and there was never a hesitation. And that was due to the fact that we just focused on relationship and the way that we would always work with clients regardless of whether it's commercial or residential. That's and I think the, the big thing for me as well with kind of um, working with Dave in that moment, because it was quite overwhelming, we were still a really small studio. So it was about kind of um, taking away this idea that this was a big thing. And it was like, just, just focus on the what we do, which is creating these intimate moments, these spaces that are uh, essentially the heart and soul of the client. And regardless of whether it's a brand or not, there's still a heart and soul there. So focus on that and the rest will come relatively easily. And once we did that, it was a bit of a slam dunk. Fantastic. I mean, you guys have gone from strength to strength over the last seven years as a studio and have a tremendous impact on the Australian interior design architecture uh, scene. Um, what's next for the studio? Look, we've always said that we want to remain small, so we will. So mm-hmm. we um, will try our best to retain a team under about 10 to 12. Um, but a big focus for us is continuing to do what we do, which is a lot of our community work. So really wanting to focus on uh, community design uh, and our residential clients, but essentially just finding our people and just working with flack people and keeping it intimate. Like we don't want to be big. I think at some stage we would love to potentially have a studio in LA just because we are very obsessed with modernist houses. um, And I think that we would like to have another experience. Mm -hmm. Uh, We do have a book that will be coming out um, at our 10 year birthday, which- 2024. Yeah, which is coming up relatively swiftly. but yeah, the big thing is just kind of focusing on relationships, residential and our community work. So I ask everybody at the end of the podcast, do you think you've designed your life? David, do you think you've designed your life? Oh, I do, actually. I, I, I think, you know, I've, I've set challenges and, and goals and, you know, constantly putting things out there and keep, you know, wanting to achieve things. But, you know, I think, the, the studio is our life and um, our, our life together. And I think we keep on putting things out there and, and, and it becomes, um, you know, something really special and, 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 um, and intriguing. But, 
I would say yes, but, um, you know, it does come a bit organically too. And Mark? Oh, look, I always thought I had in cinema, but it wasn't until I kind of met Dave and had this fusion of cinema and design that I've realised, yeah, I am, um, and that the work that we're doing now is um, is very much kind of the voice that I was searching for uh, in cinema. So. Mm. That's cool. Well, look, uh, guys, it's been so cool to have you on the on the podcast. Thank you so much for making uh, time today. I know we've been trying for months to do it face to face, but we've managed to get, pull it off uh, virtually, and it's been really great um, to hear all about uh, your background and how you think and how you work and how you vacuum and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> uh, thanks, get, Vince. Got to get those um, to get those traits out there, don't you, Vince? Yeah. yeah <laughs> thanks yeah. so much. We've really really great to chat with you been wonderful thanks for listening to today's episode of design your life from lego to skyscrapers with david flack and mark robinson tune in next week we'll be catching up with melissa christina marquez the puerto rican shark expert marine biologist and tv presenter who has dedicated her life to fighting for the world's most misunderstood creatures sharks Thanks for listening to this episode of Design Your Life. If you'd like to find out more about how you can design your life, head to the website at designyourlife.com.au. If you found this episode inspiring, please don't forget to review and subscribe. If you have any ideas or like to get in touch, we would love to hear from you. Send us an email at hello at frostcollective.com.au.